There is, of course, a ton going on in the world. We will try to get to as much of it as we can, but I have to start here. A quarterback soon to be entering the NFL, Trevor Lawrence, recently in an interview, gave us an incredible opportunity to check our own hearts. We'll do that on this week's Corey Truax Show. something to say that not a whole bunch of other people will end up being able to say. There is a genre of entertainment out there in talk radio where it tends to be current events constantly, so it's all only the things happening uh, on the news. So CNN, Fox, MSNBC, they get to tell us all what to talk about. Or you do sports talk, and ESPN tells you what to talk about. and Or you do, for that matter, Christian talk, and the, the, the that kind of media, that's, typically those are more publications, give you the topics. But then... There's me. There's the fusion of a lot of things, and we're going to do that in just a minute with a, I think, a really important point that we need not miss from Trevor Lawrence. We'll do that in just a moment. My name's Corey Truax. I will be your host for the hour on WHRT, his radio talk. Thank you for listening there or wherever you find podcasts. I also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030. You are invited, and I hope to see you there. Here is where we got to begin. You probably know Trevor Lawrence if you're listening to me in the upstate of South Carolina. He is the Clemson Golden Child. Came in freshman year, went 15-0, and routed Alabama in the national championship game, a historically good team. We all know Trevor Lawrence. He is now weeks away from being drafted number one overall to the Jacksonville Jaguars. He is riding high, just recently married his high school sweetheart. Things are going well. So he gets the cover of Sports Illustrated. And this young man who certainly has been a professor of Jesus, but also seems to understand some depth that other professors of Jesus, those who wear the label and then are famous for acting, sports, entertainment, he seems to be at a different level maybe to understand some things that are important. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and in the corresponding interview, he was asked, what does it look like what does an NFL successful career look like for you? And instead of saying winning, 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 he said, well, success for me is being a good husband, eventually being a good father. It's being faithful. And of course, I'd love to win. I'd love to win Super Bowls, but that's not going to define me. That's not going to define my success. What maturity for a young, young man. He's a child. Now, he's a 6'5", 215-pound child, but I mean, there's maturity that is so that is so beyond that age. Because we even fall into that trap. I will get into that in a moment. But. So that's what he said, and then he got some criticism. Is this the kind of guy that you want leading your team? Do you want a quarterback on your team leading your franchise that doesn't define himself by winning, doesn't define himself by success, success as measured by Super Bowls? Do you want that? And so Trevor Lawrence put out a couple tweets. I want to read them to you, and we will learn from them. Trevor Lawrence writes, It seems as if people are misreading my sentiment. I'm internally motivated. I love football. It's a huge priority in my life. I'm driven to be the best I can be and to maximize my potential and to win. I have a lot of confidence in my work ethic. I love to grind and chase my goals. That being said, this is, uh, now, I'm, this is Corey now, not Trevor Lawrence. I'm telling you, tune in. This young man says, that being said, 
I am secure in who I am and what I believe. I don't need football to make me feel worthy as a person. I purely love the game and work, the teams, the ups and downs. I am a firm believer in the fact that there's a plan for my life and I'm called to be the best I can be at whatever I'm doing. That key phrase for him, I don't need football to make me feel worthy as a person. I don't know what your football is, but we all seem to have one. I've given the illustration before, the Lord of the Rings novels give the, the main bad guy, Sauron, he's supposed to be a parable of human idolatry. The ring that he wants so much is all he can obsess over. He, he can't be happy without the ring. And so all he ever tries to do is get it because it's, it's what makes him him. It's what gives him a body. He's disembodied without it. And we all have a ring. We all have a football. And it's worth doing some introspection to ask, what is my football? What, what it isn't for Trevor Lawrence? What is it for me? Is it just my parents' approval? For now, as an adult, is it just them saying, yeah, you did a good job? Is it just the approval of any, uh, any figure you can think of, any uh, authority figure? Is it a certain title? If I get that title, that's, I, that's what's going to make me a person? Is it love? Is it marriage? Is it a kid? What is, what is your football? I make this point a lot on the show. I think it's one of the things the human heart tries to ignore in itself that this is true of us. But it's so, it's so awesome to see a young man say it out loud. No, I'm, I'm not going to be defined by how things go at my job. I'm a human. You know, I work at a university. I, I, say, I say to student athletes, a lot of colleges will say to you, you know, we, we really value the student over the athlete. You're both the student and the athlete. And I like to say, yeah, you're not just a student or an athlete. You're a young man. You're a young woman with a spouse eventually to love, kids eventually to raise, careers eventually to chase, churches to serve, a God to serve. You're not just these categories. You're a person. And in that case, you're not just your career. You're not your job title. You're not a, just a wife, husband, father, mother, son, daughter. You're, you're lots of stuff. But the, ultimately, you are a child of God, made in the image of God. You're not the roles you fill and offices you fill, you're a person. And getting those offices or getting those achievements, getting those accolades or approvals, they're not going to make you a person. And if you chase them, you will be miserable because as I've mentioned many times, eventually you will get them. You will often get that terrible feeling of having a goal, meeting it, and not being satisfied at all by it. So I ask you to challenge yourself. What's that mean for me? Here's this great example. Laurel's good to give us a Christian young man out in, the, out in the public square to give this biblical truth. You are not what happens at your job. You are not defined by the thing you think you want the most and then getting it or not getting it. Now, I want to give that in a, a compare contrast. There's another quarterback that a lot of folks thinks is the best that ever played. I don't agree, but he's obviously had the best career of anyone who's ever played. Tom Brady years ago did an interview on 60 Minutes that I've played for you a couple times. I'm going to play for you at least a piece of it here. This is the opposite. This is the misery. 
of being defined by football, being defined by your job, being defined by getting the affection, the approval of someone else, getting the power over someone else, whatever your idol is. Tom Brady was just asked on the 60 Minutes interview from, man, this was probably 15 years ago. Yeah, probably 2005, after he won his third Super Bowl. And the question here on 60 Minutes was something like, what, is it, what does it take, or has it always been easy for you? What has caused this kind of success? This is what Tom Brady says. I don't think my mind allows me to rest ever or for things to come easy because I, I have, I think, a, a chip on my shoulder um, and some deep scars that I don't think will heal because I was always the person who was always trying to, and I know everybody has these stories of hardships, but I was always the one that no one ever picked. That was the backup quarterback on a fresh. Do you hear that difference? I can't rest. My mind won't let me rest. I, I'm still nursing wounds from high school of being picked last. This is what happens. Oh, you know what's funny? It's actually Trevor Lawrence said in that Sports Illustrated interview. I'm just realizing this in the moment. He said, I don't have a trip chip on my shoulder. I'm not having to prove anything. Do you hear the exact opposite here? And now imagine the outcomes. Trevor Lawrence finished in 15 or 15 years of his, his NFL career that he is able to now rest. I, I was never football, and football goes away. What happens to a Tom Brady when football goes away? What does he become? More importantly, what happens to you? What happens to you when... You lose the title, experience, achievement, item, approval that you made your all. What happens when it goes away? I'll give you another illustration of this from that episode. Tom Brady was making an argument. Like, I've got all the, he's just talking about his Super Bowl rings and how, how much he loves them and what they mean to him. And this is a, a really interesting exchange he has with a 60 Minutes uh, journalist. Rings do you like the best? If you didn't hear the question, it's which one of those rings do you like the best? Favorite ring. My favorite ring. We always said, and I said always, the next one. The next one's the best. The next one's the best. The next ring. Can you rest in that you have now six? No, I need the next one. It's, it almost it makes me sad for him. It makes me sad for others that live this way. It's not just him. There's a lot of America out there that is living this way. They just need the next thing, and that's what's going to make them themselves. Self-actualization will take place. There's one last part of the interview from years ago. I just want to play for you again. I've played it several times on the show over the last six years, but the question is, what's next for Tom Brady? And really, I think the question originally was, how did it feel waking up after your third Super Bowl you just married Giselle, Victoria's Secret model, $40 million contract. Gillette just signs you to a multi-million dollar deal. How's that feel when you wake up in the morning? This is Tom Brady. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. 
wish I knew. I mean, it's, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. But there's a, I know, I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. And Do you hear it in there? There's a real angst. What am I if not football? And if it's not, and if football is not satisfying me, there's got to be more of myself that I go find, and that'll do it. Contrast that with what you heard from Trevor Lawrence. I don't need football to make me a person. And now challenge yourself. What are you finding? What's your football from the Lord of the, Lord of the Rings illustration earlier? What's your your ring? that you just keep chasing, but it will never satisfy. As you even heard at the end of Tom Brady there at the end, I wish I could say to him, hey man, I have an answer. Whatever this next thing in life you're going to try to find, that that's going to satisfy you. Oh, I've got it. I've got the thing. You can stop searching. And you all listen to me long enough to know it's, there is but, but one that satisfies, satisfies. And that is being who we are in relationship to Jesus Christ, our maker. When we come back, I have an interesting question for you, I think, about what the Christian should expect in a secular world between triumph and defeat. We'll talk about that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me. My name is Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can follow along. Send a friend request, click follow, whatever the action item is on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I hope that you will. Also, thank you to those supporting the show financially. You're, you are deeply appreciated. You can do that at anchor.fm, anchor.fm. You can just find the Corey Truax Show and sign up right there. I hope that you will. I was ruminating on something, which we all know is dangerous. That, that thing I do when I decide I just start wrestling with something, I, uh, I, I turn off the podcast in my car or whatever I listen to and just think on all that driving I do back and forth. Here was the, uh, what's the, the catalyst? Let's go with catalyst. The catalyst for the thinking. I heard a discussion. I was not involved in the discussion. I was listening to one by others about political matters, elections, things going on in the world. And what I heard was an expectation expressed for the Christian. And what I heard expressed was, well, all you can expect is the world to get worse. The world has to get worse. That's apparently what brings Jesus back. I could, I could hear this ethic being expressed that, well, of, of course, the world is only going to get worse. Christians can do nothing about it and really probably shouldn't try. We probably shouldn't try to get, even try to get secular people to live by Christian thinking. So I, I heard that discussion, and it got me ruminating on this question. What should we expect, those of you listening to me in the faith, what should we expect in a secular world, in a world that rejects our faith and, or at least ex and, uh, rejects the ex exclusivity of faith claims altogether? And is there an ethic that we follow in terms of imposition, do, do we seek to impose our values on others as they impose their values on us? Started thinking through it. 
Here's some uh, of those thoughts. We'll start here. There are those that just seem to think that the ultimate outcome is disaster. The only outcome can be the, the end of all things, and so there's no use trying. That is one ditch to fall into. So don't even try to see a culture become more Christianized, more biblical. Don't even try. There's also some other ditches. Over on the charismatic end of Christianity, there's a concept called the seven mountains. It's supposed to be the seven mountains of culture. They generally stole that, by the way. Anthropology, the study of civilizations, came up with the concept years ago, and, and all they, the charismatic group just changed it a little bit. The idea there is there are seven things that make up culture. I'm doing this from memory, so let's see how I can do. Uh, seven things make up a culture. The institution of the family, the, your media, how information is disseminated. So don't hear news media necessarily. It just means how is information disseminated. Education, it is arts and entertainment, or you can call that celebration. There are, uh, the, there's the government, the institution of the church, the, the religion in that society. I'm uh, missing one now. I, so I, I can't remember. But there's a group of, of people in theology that say, well, what we should be doing as Christians is trying to rule those things. The, the, I think Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, who I think is a little nutty, he seems to think that, that the job of the Christian is take control of the education system and make it operate under Christian principles. Uh, it's take control of the government, take control of... Uh, or it, it's, I don't know how you take control of the family. The, the, the concept here is the, the Christian family is a single person a single adult who is uh, married to gets married and then husband, wife, kids, not and not all the other things that the secular world has added to the institution of the family. I don't know how you impose that, but there are then those that would say there's even a very, very, very far out group. I don't know how many of them there are. It's quite small. That would say the the goal for the Christian is take over a a culture and a government and impose biblical law in a way that, for example, uh, non-Christians are treated well in that society, but they don't vote, they don't speak into the to the culture. We have uh, laws around what kinds of arts and entertainment can be issued. These are, I'm giving you extremes on both ends here to, to, to start tr- trying to create the question. Well, what, what should we expect? I think, I think I've landed here. It certainly is the clear biblical call of the Christian to make disciples. The mission statement of your life, of your church, is go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So it's both making converts and then teaching them to observe Christian principle. So we have this mission statement, we have our mandate, go make converts, teach them biblical thinking, biblical behavior. Now, if we do that, what happens to the culture around us? If we are effective in that and growing the church, the demand for no-fault divorce shrivels up a good bit. The demand for adultery goes down. The de- the uh, the instances, the demand for abandoning your family and leaving a wife to take care of, of kids on her own diminishes. 
the education system teaching insane things like critical race theory or uh, teaching the mechanics of sex acts to seven-year-olds. All that stops because we took over education. The media is honest because the, the, the demand for narrative-driven media diminishes, right? So if we go... If we go preach the gospel, making converts, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, it hasn't been Christianity from the top taking over and imposing itself. It has from the bottom making a people seeking to do that which the Lord would would have them, and it creates a culture in all those institutions. It creates a Christian culture in all those institutions. I am open to the debate, the discussion of doing it the other way around, the top down. I just don't think that's the biblical model. Like the idea of take over, take over the institutions and then rule from above from a Christian perspective. I don't think that's called theonomy. I'm still learning about theonomy. I don't, I I still can't quite put a definition on it, but well, one of these days we'll get into it. And those of you that know better, if you want to write in as I talk about this, about theonomy and the role that would play here, uh, then that'd be great. But So I wanted to draw this distinction. It is not an imposition on a culture. Christians aren't violating non-Christians in a culture by saying, we want the law around family to encourage moms and dads to stay together. We want the education system to leave certain things for families to teach because it's none of the government's business. And we want, we'd love an education system that actually teaches these, these moral lessons from the Bible. We'd want a arts and entertainment culture that doesn't, doesn't allow pornography to be so easily accessed by anybody, but certainly not by children, that these aren't impositions. These are, these are just the Christian values. These are Christian values that we know are best for everybody. And it's, it's not imposing in that if you live in a free society, that's what the secular people are doing to you. They impose upon the Christian. You you will accept our values. We're going to have the media, the arts, the entertainment, the education system, the, the family thinking, we're going to have all of those, and you can get over it. You will live by our standards. This is, I think it's an important point that gets missed. We, someone's morality is going to rule. There is no such thing as an amoral society. And there's, I think, I think, there is some mealy mouths maybe, and I don't mean that insultingly, by the way. I think poor teaching about the role of the church in society has some folks just hunkering down and not wanting to ruffle any feathers. But someone's morality is going to be imposed. And right now, we live in a world where secularism, and particularly secular leftism, is the morality imposed upon us. And we're seeing the degradation of the culture because of it. I mean, think of, think of where we are and the, as the morality of the secular world is imposed on us. We, we don't have to let it be. 
we can respond, again, by sharing the gospel, one, by changing the people, but also in a free society saying, hey, if you're going to try to impose your, your morality on us, like, we're, well, here's our morality, and we actually think it's, it's better for people. It's going to be better for, for, everyone's, for everyone's flourishing. Just think of all the stuff that the secular leftists have controlled for so long and ask yourself if, if it's gotten better. Secularism and leftism have controlled the media, the means of getting information disseminated, for 50 years. Are we better off for that? Are we better off that CNN, Fox, and MSNBC exist? And, and Fox, not even, Fox isn't even a leftist thing. They're secularists, but they are, they're, they're, not, they're not of the left, but it was leftism that controlled the media structure and I guess created a, re- a response to itself. That's what Fox ended up being, a response. Are we better off because the left has controlled the media? The, the education system. The secular left, secular morality, has controlled the education system. Are we educating better? Are any of us satisfied with the educational product our public schools puts out? The left has controlled the education system for, since the 60s at least. And it's, it's not gotten better. It's actually degraded. The institution of the family. Leftism has controlled family thinking for now 50 or 60 years. Are we better for it? You can just look around right now, people my age, I'm 35, and younger, and look at the abandonment, the, the emotions that come along with it, the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, we've seen what leftist and secular morality has done to the family. It had dads abandoning their responsibilities. Secularism said dads don't matter. Secularism said to women, you can have it all. And we've seen wreckage. It's it's now more common to grow up in a, what we used to call broken home, than it is to grow up with a nuclear family. I mean, for that matter, there was a fairly prominent left-wing organization last year that took it off their website, but their original document said they were for the abol- they were for abolishing the nuclear family. Leftism has controlled the family, and they destroyed it, and there's been wreckage. Think about arts and entertainment. Leftism has controlled that since the rock and roll revolution of the 60s. Is it better? Are we more creative now? Or there's some there's some glittering jewels out there. There's some there's some good art that pops through on your TV, on your movie screen, through your streaming services. There's some good stuff, but we tend to swim in a world of vapidness or vap- vapidity. I don't know how that the structure of that word works. So it's all all that chewing led me there. What should a Christian expect? Well. Not to rule over, like get power and then impose itself, but it should expect that it can go out and win people over through the gospel and in the culture they're in when it's a free society, knowing that some morality is going to be imposed, do its best to get the morality that's best for people according to God and scriptures. Get the morality that's the best for people codified in some way, and not be sorry about it. So that's it. Uh, that's it. Well, we, we don't have to, Christianity doesn't have to slink into the nothingness. It doesn't have to be 
defeated on earth until Jesus comes. That's not what the, what the Bible teaches. We're given actually the mandate, go therefore preach the gospel. We're given the mandate to occupy until he comes. We are given the mandate to see Christianity and its values grow, not shrink. And again, I've mentioned on the show pre- previously, fairly recently, it is growing in Asia, Latin America, Africa. It can still grow here. We don't have to batten down the hatches yet. And I'd encourage you not to. Don't have a defeatist attitude. Uh, so let me give you this, uh, this action item. If you have thoughts on any of that, because I know there's a lot there. It's Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And you can tell me your thoughts on what a Christian should expect, what a Christian's, uh, let's go with, obligations are to the culture around it and not imposing itself, but also asserting itself because it's, it is the movement best for people and what the balance is and all of that, I'd be interested in your thoughts. You, the Corey Truex Show listener, here on his radio talk, 89.7, and wherever you find podcasts. When we come back, I want to talk to you about a left-wing leader who called herself a Marxist. She was part of the Black Lives Matter organization, who's a little hypocritical on some a, a current a recent decision of hers. And then I have some hard things to say about how a lot of stuff can be simultaneously true as we are working into a culture now where we've had some more recent police shootings and I am not looking forward to talking about these but there's there's some stuff I think needs to get said we'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truex show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts well this segment's going to be uncomfortable by the end of it but stick with me welcome back to the Corey Truex show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts I'm honored that you have chosen to join the show either today Saturday morning or this week if you're listening to the podcast whenever that is there is a activist out there she's getting some notoriety her name is Patrice Cullors and she is what uh, or was one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter organization really quick important distinction the organization was evil from the start. They had their founding documents were egregiously immoral for what they said they were aiming for. The sentence "Black Lives Matter" is utterly obvious, uh, true, and uncontroversial. The organization had a lot of problems, and I would even say the movement has made mistakes. But the the movement's heart is a good move. It's, it's a good heart, even if the tactics are sometimes not great. So there's three things there. There's the sentence, which is true, the movement, which is flawed, and the organization, which was evil to its core. And she is part of the the organization. Now, she also called herself at the beginning of starting the Black Lives Matter organization a trained Marxist. I don't know if you know about Marxism, but it's supposed to be shared. Shared everything, right? You, you no, no one owns anything. The means of production and the fruit thereof are all owned by the proletariat in some kind of collectivism. So certainly, uh, opulent wealth is not a thing you're supposed to have in Marxism. We spread everything out. Now, despite her saying she's a trained Marxist who would be for the spreading out of all the wealth, we just found out she is now owning four homes. She's made a lot of money off this Black Lives Matter movement. Her... Her other homes are in quite white neighborhoods and very wealthy neighborhoods, one particular in California. And so she has gotten some criticism from that, including, by the way, 
from members of Black Lives Matter's organizations, smaller organizations and chapters around the country. She's gotten criticism from within for this grift and all the money she made and how she's spending it. So she goes on Mark Lamont Hill's show to talk about why she did what she did. And I think it's very instructive. So you'll first hear Mark Lamont Hill and then Patricia Cullors as they talk about all of her home ownership now. There's mm-hmm. also a critique, though, from the left that would say, um, if you are a trained Marxist, if we're talking about a certain kind of radical politic, that extravagant homes of any sort or multiple properties of any sort is itself contradictory to the ideology that you hold. And so it's not about having money per se, but that it's about uh, or about property per se, but it's about there being a potential contradiction between your express politics and your lived practice. I'm going to just uh, pause here to say good job, Mark Lamont Hill, pointing out the very clear contradiction that you would take all the money for yourself, opulent wealth and investment wealth, only spend it on yourself, is utterly contradictory to both your Marxism and your saying that the American black experience is a shared experience that, they all, that you all need to share together, and then you cloister yourself away with all the money that you have gotten. Here is her response. Sure. And I think that is a critique that is um, wanting. And I say that because um, the, the, the way that I live my life is in direct support to Black people, including my Black family members. Huh. You just limited your universe. The Marxist, including their organization, the Black Lives Matter organization, said in their original document they were for the abolition of the nuclear family. The, the Marx, Marxists and far leftists throughout time have said that. you got to do away with moms and dads because the state is supreme. The state is mom and dad to everybody. The state is brother and sister to everybody. It is the government is all things. And hey, Patricia, Patricia, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Uh, you seem to be limiting your scope. Like, it's not even all black people as you're, racial Marxism said, you've now limited it just to your family. How interesting. Uh, First and foremost, and uh, for so many black folks who are able to invest um, in themselves and their community, they choose to invest in their family. And that's what I've chosen to do. Um, I have a child, I have a brother that has severe mental illness that I take care of. Um, I support my mother, um, and I support many other family members of mine. And so I see um, uh, my money as not my own. I see it as um, my family's money as well. Wow. What a dishonest person. I'm going to remind myself she's a person made in the image of God and hold together my the temper that flares up a little there. A couple thoughts. Hey, you're not a Marxist. You know what you sound like? A capitalist. She says, I don't consider my money my own. I consider it my family's. Okay. Yeah, but you consider it your family's. It's yours that you grifted. You didn't earn it. You grifted to use the way you want and then used it for your family. That's just called capitalism and freedom. My money is mine. But in some ways, I don't consider it mine because sometimes someone might need something from me. And so I will freely from my own free, from my, my own storehouses, if you will, my own ability will give to others. You're not a Marxist. Here's actually what happened. Is you were a Marxist when you were poor and then you got some money 
and you turned into a capitalist like the rest of us. It's just really hypocritical living. To, to this woman, let me just say, I don't begrudge that at all. You're actually living the exact right way. You should take care of your family. If you got the means, even though I think your means are ill-gotten, take care of your family. You got people who need you, support them. Work hard, support the people that you're responsible for. And if you've got the means to be responsible for people that need help, man, go help them. This is the kind of... This is one of those right-left divides that's so clear. The, the leftist mentality tends to be, I will not be personally charitable. The government will do it. And if, whatever they tax me is how much they, I, that needs to be taxed. But liberals are not, leftists are not, particularly charitable. The, according to a book from David Brooks several years ago, who now works at Harvard, the book was called Who Really Cares?, we, conservatism, we are the charitable ones. We look at need the other way. Not that someone else will do it, that I'll do it. My family needs me. My siblings need me. In, in my case, church members need me. Let's take care of each other. The, the folks on the left, by the way, will respond sometimes to that book from David Brooks that shows the data that conservatives are the personally charitable. We sacrifice our stuff for others. We don't look to the government to do it. And they argue back, well, if you remove religious giving, if you remove the tithe, then the gap is much shorter. It's, it's not like conservatives are way out giving liberals. Well, one, there's no reason to do away with the tithe. My tithe goes into a church fund. That church fund, all, not super often, but in the past, is used to help a family in need, either in our body, in our congregation, or someone in the community around us. It also goes into a larger Baptist fund, which goes into the cooperative fund. The cooperative fund is responsible for digging a ton of wells and giving food, uh, food aid, doing na na natural disaster aid. Yeah, we are, you know, there's no reason to take out the tithe. There's no reason to take out religious giving. Religious giving is responsible for a ton of the good works done around the world. Surgeries to deal with cleft palates and LASIK surgeries we send over to Africa. We do all kinds of stuff with religious giving. There is no reason to remove it. But go ahead and remove it. Conservatives are still unbelievably more generous than the, left, than the leftists are. Because we actually believe what this woman is acting out. She says she believes in Marxism and collectivization. But when she actually got some stuff, she went to take care of her family. And no, there's no problem with that. Taking care of her brother with mental illness, good for you. Taking care of your elderly mom, good for you. Honor your father and mother. That's a great the fifth commandment or sixth one, I don't remember. It's, a, it's an awesome thing. Let's just recognize the terrible hypocrisy of calling yourself a Marxist and then behaving like a capitalist. Now, capitalism, Marxism, often in the abstract, those are ideas. She was giving us something concrete to illustrate. And now we need to go the other direction. There are some concrete examples that are going to, we need to re reverse engineer into some ideas and philosophy. And it's in that realm that I'm talking about the things that's dominating your feeds and news cycles. It's... New police, shooting, new police shootings, like the one in, I think that, no, that's not Virginia. The Dante Wright would have been Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, where a woman officer 
thought she was fi- firing a taser, apparently, and accidentally killed Dante Wright. The 13-year-old Adam Toledo killed in Chicago. And all that happening in the backdrop of the Derek Chauvin trial. I've heard a lot of arguments about this. I listen to a lot of different kinds of media. I listen to some conservative media, certainly some liberal media. I witness from time to time Facebook back and forth. I'll lurk in the comments and see the argument. And I wish I could just paint a banner over a lot of discussions that I, where I see arguments about these matters, police shootings, whether or not there's a racial component to them, uh, some of the other things I'm hearing, that police are undertrained, that maybe the, uh, the, the problem is the nuclear family falling apart, it's fatherlessness. And even co- a comparison of a bunch of different shootings and situations that don't belong, I wish I could just say, as a banner over all these discussions, lots of things can be true at the same time. For us to have any kind of honest and meaningful discussion about these, there's a certain maturity that is required. There's certainly a, a necessity to suss out and differentiate from situation to situation and then recognize that the person that you kind of disagree with, that there is some real validity into what they're saying. And just and the fact that there's some validity to what they're saying doesn't mean there's not validity into what you're saying. So... Let me put some skin on those bones. Or I guess that's meat on those bones. Give you examples of what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. There's a, there is much too much conflagration between police shootings of black Americans. Because they aren't all created equal. I, I can hear in the, in the same discussion people talking about Adam Toledo... Tamir Rice, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Dante Wright, and Ahmaud Arbery, all in the same category. And they don't belong there. It's really important that we get that. I can hear them say the names of cops or citizens involved in those cases as if they're all the same person. It's one of the themes of our show. You gotta not deal in categories. Everybody's a person. Everybody's made the image of God. We don't deal in categories. You, you wouldn't want to put, be put in one. Don't put other people in them. So first thing is differentiate all, the, all of the individual cases and get the fact pattern from each case. No case is dependent on the other. No situation is affected by the other. They're all individual cops or citizens and, and potential perpetrators or victims. Every single one of them, you, you got to not do that thing. It's very tempting Got to mature enough to keep them all separate and keep the fact patterns different. Because listen to me, Adam Toledo isn't Tamir Rice. Tamir Rice was just a child playing with a toy. And he is dead because a cop panicked, shot him. Adam Toledo is running around with a real gun at 3 in the morning, 13 years old, and certainly a dangerous situation altogether. I'm not, I'm not absolving this cop of that shot him by any stretch. Not at all. I'm saying, can you see the difference in that? 
a child playing with a gun, a, excuse me, a toy gun in the middle of the day being shot down and a kid, a 13-year-old kid running around in the middle of the night in Chicago who did have an actual gun and we now, we know running around with a particular crowd. Those aren't the same, you know, right? Can, can we agree? George Floyd isn't Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor was asleep. In her, asleep in her place. George Floyd was on a bunch of drugs, resisted arrest. That doesn't mean anything about him. It's being okay for him to be killed. It's not. It's not okay. But can you see? Can we admit those aren't the same thing? Can we admit that Dante Wright is not Ahmaud Arbery? Ahmaud Arbery was running out for a jog. Apparently, he was looking at some properties. He might have gone into a house that was halfway under construction, but didn't really do anything. Dante Wright, and about, by the way, Ahmaud Arbery having no history at all, but Dante Wright having history that they, the cops were able to pull up, that this is guy who's assaulted women in the past, who was one of the warrants out was he robbed a woman of 800 and some odd dollars she was trying to keep in her, uh, keep in her underwear to pay her rent. Who, again, resisted arrest and was accidentally shot. Can we admit that that that's not the same as Tamir Rice or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery? Are we allowed to do that? We should. It's important. You know, the think about the cops. This Potter woman who shot Dante Wright. She isn't the cop who shot Walter Scott. Do you remember that monster? A cop here in South Carolina shot a black man as he ran away and then tried to plant a gun next to him? Tried to get away with killing that man? Walter Walter Scott's murderer is in jail, as he should be. He's not the same as this Potter woman. She made a terrible mistake, and she needs to be punished for her mistake. But can Can you admit they're not the same thing? Can we mature enough to say both of these things are true? Yeah, resisting arrest... Fighting off cops, it, it absolutely increases your chance of really bad things happening, and you shouldn't do it. But the punishment for resisting arrest should not be being killed. Can we do both? Because I hear one group of people saying, well, if you don't want to be killed, don't resist arrest. Okay. Yeah, I hear you. But can you also hear that if you resist arrest, that th- that doesn't need to end in your death? that there should be some other outcomes available to us. Can we say both? Can we say that police are, in a lot of places, are woefully undertrained? But it is also true that there's a cultural issue of fatherlessness. That there's no reason for a 13-year-old boy to be on the streets of Chicago at 3 in the morning. That's a parenting fail. Can we say that there are police failures and parenting failures? Are you willing to do that? Are we willing to say that there is some underlying racial... Uh, there's, there's something underlying here about history, of the, the racial history of the country, and how that affects who ends up being in trouble, who ends up being in situations where they're going to interact with police more? 
can we say that that's true, the historic racial inequity has caused structurally a situation where disproportionately non-white people are going to live in situations where they're going to interact with cops more. Because you know that's the predictor? The predictor of your being arrested, interacting with police, all, uh, and, or being shot by police, the better predictor is, are you poor? If you correct for poverty between white and black, you actually get very similar statistics about interactions with cops. But what we know just historically is disproportionately our economically disadvantaged are non-white people. And so disproportionately they interact with police in negative ways. Can we say all that is true and then also say, hey, in a lot of these cases, we don't actually have any, in a lot of these cases of cops shooting black people, we don't actually have any evidence of it being racial. There's not technically actually any evidence of any kind of racial animus against Adam Toledo or Dante Wright. You, if you, if you assume it, it is only that. It's an assumption you've decided to make. You've decided to divine yourself someone else's motivations. I don't know if you're allowed to do that. I don't think that's helpful. And I'm wondering as a whole, can we say all those things are true? That all of them can be problems. That resisting arrest is a problem. And fatherlessness is a problem. But so is police training, and they seem to be making a lot of mistakes. So is the underlying effect of racial inequity over time. I will admit my own skepticism that we might not be a people up to that task. But if we want to make any kind of progress, that's the kind of moment we have to rise up to. To be able to say all the hard things. Everybody look at the problem squarely in the face. Call it what it is. All of the various and sundry problems and address them. Lord have mercy on us and help us do it. Listeners of the Court Jurek Show, hope you know. I'm grateful for you. Please share the show with others. I will be back with another new edition of the Court Jurek Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.